welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valian Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. I think it's, don't quote me on this, but I think we're like episode 110 now, so it's <laughs> crazy to think we're over 100 and it just seems like it was 100 yesterday. So we keep rolling on, but I'm going to quit babbling because we have a really special guest today. Um, Miss Amy Shipley um, is here with SRG, and she actually spoke today at lunch on um, the the demand of of beef across the country and the globe. And so I'm I can't do her any justice. So I'm thank you, Amy, for joining us. And would you give listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and thanks for having me. This is a very cool podcast. So. Love it. And congratulations. Over a hundred. Yeah. Woohoo. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah. My name is Amy Shipley. I'm a partner at um, a company called SRG, which is based in Boulder, Colorado, and um, have worked with the beef industry on and off for, for nearly 30 years, um, doing a lot of the marketing innovation work, NCBA, JBS, some other partners of states as well. And we're here because we're working with the Idaho Beef Council and have since the summer to help them um, build demand for beef overall, right? Um, and think about it in terms of what consumers are consuming, whether it's a retail or food service, and also to think about some new innovation work as we think about beef on the menu. Uh, we see prices obviously at very high right now, but also demand is at all time high. So it's, it's somewhat of a good problem to have, but uh, what we wanna do is make sure beef stays on the menu, especially in the restaurant industry, which is quickly recovering. Um, and to make sure it works across the menu. We're also having a lot of new folks moving into Idaho, whether they like it or not, <laughs> some do and some don't, and that's a fair comment. But um, we also wanna make sure they don't just come to the state, not really understand what it's all about and who is, is keeping um, the pastures the way they look today and preserving the kind of sustainability and agriculture community that we have here today. And beef is at the forefront of a lot of that work. So we want to also welcome to them to Idaho, but also teach them about the history of Idaho beef, um, the opportunities, the quality of the product that we have here, our sustainable practices that we, we um, partake in here, and, and also show them some pretty cool applications that maybe they couldn't find in California <laughs> um, that they've never seen before. Um, so we want to make sure we keep them as beef fans. Well, thank you for that that overview. And maybe let's just start kind of at the beginning of two years ago when COVID started and how, you know, you've just come into the beef industry in the into the Idaho beef segment in the last six months. But this is things have changed dramatically since over the last two years. What does that look like from a research and a marketing standpoint that you guys have kind of noticed these trends happening? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, the reality is pre-COVID, um, we had too many restaurants in this country. We had a lot. And there was, as I like to say, a thinning of the herd that needed to be happened, right? We just had too many. And we had too many lousy ones, right, frankly. And so I certainly, or none of us believe that COVID, unfortunately, was the way for that to happen. But we lost over 80,000 restaurants uh, during the pandemic. Um, we, we thought it would take years for the restaurant industry to recover. And while we all, many of us at least, love to go out to eat, um, you know, I think what was important for the beef industry is a tremendous, over 50% of our sales was going towards restaurants. And so um, losing that um, ability to sell through that channel was, was really scary. 
um, what we were able to do, or pivot is a terrible word, but we've all overused it, um, is get a lot of that beef volume over to retail. And then certain restaurants got very creative. Like you take Chandler's down in uh, Boise, Idaho. Um, they did some really upscale, really cool kits out to people. But a lot of folks were buying some really beautiful cuts through, um, through retail. Now that's all good, but now that we're getting coming back and um, emerging from all this, restaurants are bouncing back a lot faster than we thought, which on one hand is really, really great, right? Um, on the other hand, it's happening a bit too fast. Um, we just can't get that supply chain back in play. Um, we lost a lot of trained chefs and distributors that sell beef um, during the COVID um, situation. And so we're educating a whole new crew of people about beef. Um, so that's been an interesting challenge. Um, but the industry is recovering. We're also seeing a, a challenge with labor, which I guess we are really across the country, right? The year of resignation, I guess they call it. And um, especially in the restaurant industry has been hit really hard. So, and they are our frontline salesmen, if you will, at restaurants for beef. You know, they're the ones that are often making recommendations. Um, restaurants can't operate at 50% capacity um, in terms of staff. So that's been a challenge as well. Um, so for beef, um, our uh, challenge here is to make sure A, beef stays on the menu when these restaurants come back into play, B, they can get the product and C, we're educating them on how to use the product and look at a variety of cuts, whether it's middle meats or from the chuck in the round, more underutilized cuts that are really versatile. And that's really the, the key to all this to help continue the industry to, to flourish. I'm curious, what might be trying to edge beef off of the menu? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a combination, you know, in the old days, I'd say, okay, here's the stiff competition coming from chicken, right, or pork's coming in there. But, you know, right now, the menus are shrinking. So if you had a menu item that had maybe 30 items, they might be going down to 20 or 15, because they just don't have the supply, and they don't have the labor, and they can't afford to have all the kind of menu items they had before. Um, that's really important, because with beef on the menu, we can't just be like a steak. It has to be more, it has to be beef as an ingredient. You wanna season an appetizer. You might wanna go in and share something with your girlfriends, right, for fun. Um, so we really need to see beef applications across that menu. You know, the competition too, still is, is poultry still there? You know, I, I've been a strong believer that um, you know, chicken's versatile, it can be cheap. You know, that's always been the challenge. Um, all prices though are going up for all commodities right now, whether it's in the protein category or even oils and shortenings and other items. So everybody is facing this kind of deal. Um, shortages are a main issue um, that we're having. Um, so uh, I, I explained today at lunch, I feel like we all should be wearing a t-shirt food servicing, I'm sorry, um, because uh, we're just not getting the, the product in there. So I think chicken is still a main competitor. I think pork is having um, a tougher time, obviously, with what's going on with the industry coming back. You know, I've, we all talk about plant-based, right? It's certainly here. And there's, for me, as a, someone who's been food beverage for 30 years, there's nothing wrong with we all need to share the plate in some way. And frankly, I see beef going nowhere, right? The demand is at an all-time high. So I really don't see it as competition. I just see, like, where do we fit in? Um, and how can we be served up in really interesting applications that meet these new generational needs? You know, and I listen, I love a great steak. Um, 
and I plan to have plenty of them here while I'm at, in Sun Valley. But I also want to see it in different like ethnic global applications and, and things that I crave. And I think a lot of younger people crave as well. So what are you, I guess, seeing as you talk diving into that global trends or what are you, are you seeing as those demands for beef? Because like we talked, you talked about today, typically we're expected to see a steak and a potato <laughs> come to lunch. And we didn't see that today. Yeah. We're seeing different applications and what's, what's driving that or where's the, where's our market showing that we need to start innovating? That's a great question. So what we're seeing, this is really fascinating. So this is um, data that came from data essentials, which is a big research house that, that works independently for the food service industry. Um, we're seeing that 38% of the population, total population, is looking for global cuisine and have had global cuisine of the past week. So when people decide to come back, what we found immediately following COVID, we all wanted like what we craved, you know, what we miss, like our favorite steak, right? Our favorite steak, you know, be, like, I don't know, spaghetti bolognese, right? Whatever it might be, comfort. But then it's like, okay, now show me something different that I can't make at home. And a lot of these global applications are a little bit more challenging. They require different ingredients and skill sets. So what we're finding with um, millennials and then Gen Xers, my children's age, is they truly want a global experience and it's become more mainstream. And I'm not talking about, you know, traditional Chinese or Italian or Mexican. You have to take that out of the mix for a minute. What they're really seeking are like truly global cuisine. So Japanese, for example, is the number one trending cuisine here in the United States right now. Um, and you're seeing that with different FAs from Vietnam, you're seeing Chinese influences, you're seeing Japanese influences across there, but Asian is really, really, really hot, right? Latin America, very, very hot. You're also seeing a melting pot of regional America you know, so we're seeing little mashups and I showed a photograph today of a, a, a beautiful stroganoff. And I love beef stroganoff, traditional beef stroganoff. Nothing wrong with it, right? We love it. But when you take a little twist on it, and this was a, a Latin American twist where we had, first of all, we added beef, like a, a pulled beef, which was a little bit different. We added some jalapeno crema to it and a sauce. It just gave it, it was familiar enough to be like, oh, this is delicious but then far enough away to be like, hmm, this is really cool. And I want to order this when I go out to eat. So we just have to remember when people go out, they want something special and usually something they can't really replicate. On those, those ingredients, like I look at my pantry and I have a lot of seasonings, but I don't always have those, those unique sauces or fish oil or whatever that come with some of those global cuisines. Cause they're expensive to purchase for one dish. They are. It really adds up in your in your basket, right? So that's that's why going out to eat and eating, you know, a great soup, for example, for eight bucks, or having a great dinner, or even a bowl, right? I mean, we're seeing a lot of in restaurants. This not just being at fine dining. This is happening at what we call fast casual type units, like the Chipotle's of the world. So we're really learning into that more like global cuisine. And again, there's no way that steak and potato will ever go out of style, at least in my book. <laughs> but, um, but that's really where, where, where the trends are moving. And so what we're trying to do with Idaho beef is take um, cuts, especially underutilized cuts, especially, and show how they work in all these global applications. And it's an authentic play because beef plays really beautifully and authentically across the world. And we're trying to bring those, those kind of flavors. Um, there's no reason why chicken or seafood or pork or any other plant-based alternative should be taking our place in those type of applications. 
You just said that beef is very authentic. Why do you think that is? How does beef speak to people across across um, different palates and ethnicities? Yeah, I think for me, doing a lot of research in the beef industry is that, you know, beef means wealth. And I'm not talking about how much money you have in the bank, but it means abundance and it's special and it's great tasting. And there are all these nutritional, extraordinary benefits to it all. Um, so, you know, again, if you can't afford, you know, the high-end Wagyu beef that we see here in Sun Valley, there are so many different ways to bring beef into your kitchen, different ways to bring beef onto the menu to, to give people that feeling. For operators, um, it's all about money. And we talked a lot about today about follow the money. You know, that's all they want to do is make money. So if consumers didn't demand beef, um, it wouldn't be on the menu. There was nothing I could do in marketing to help you. But what operators are finding is that when consumers go out to eat, beef is actually drawing them into the restaurant um, big times. It's what they really want. They're not making a lot of money off of it right now. Unfortunately, they're kind of right at cost. Um, that fluctuates, as we know, as it goes up and down. And they most, make most of their money with appetizers, add-ons, cocktails, make them a lot of money. Um, but they have to keep beef on the menu to bring them into, into, the, um, into the restaurant. And I think for, for, for many of us, when you think about the sushi examples we shared today, I mean, if you add beef to a sushi roll, you know, you, that sushi roll went from $12 to $20 because most Americans see steak as an upgrade. They see it as a premium offering. It's, just, it's a true draw. The other part of it is for folks that don't like raw fish or don't eat seafood at all or are a little skittish about, about sushi, um, it creates a new experience for them. It's like, okay, like I understand the beef part. I'm not sure about the rice <laughs> part, but at least that we have a mashup of familiar and unfamiliar. And that's what beef does. It just anchors the conversation in something you know and love. Well, if nothing else, I'm going to love the steak and all this. And that that's what operators are looking for. So how do you, like we just talked about the beef sushi, when you're starting to create something like beef sushi or these other global experiences, how does that even start? Who, does somebody have a crazy idea and you're like, yeah, let's try it out in the test kitchen or how is that process established? And that's a great question. So um, there is a lot of research that goes into the innovation process. And so um, we obviously watch um, global trends. We have um, a proprietary uh, method that we use at SRG that we brought forward to the Idaho Beef Council and it's called culinary shifts. And it's really interesting because it might sound a little esoteric but I'll try to describe it. Um, I'm asked all the time, like what's trending? Will this stick? Will this stick, you know, mm -hmm. stick around? Is the next pink frappuccino gonna be here forever? <laughs> or is it a flash in the pan? And you know, frankly, I'm, I'm really less interested in what's trending and I'm more interested in why. Like, what is the meaning? Why is something coming on um, the scene? Why is something lasting as long as it is? Like ramen soup, right? We saw ramen soup come to this country and um, be kind of exotic 10 years ago. And today it's everywhere. And why is it sticking around? So we just developed this way of thinking about um, trends and we use steep factors. So we, those are societal trends. And we think about the environment. We think about technology. We think about politics, the economy. All the factors kind of affect why we eat, what we do, whether it be shopping at retail and making what we're doing at home or um, buying something at a restaurant. So with COVID, you saw this big surge in comfort food, right? Like it's been completely chaotic the last few years, if not longer before that. 
um, politically, um, obviously the health and wellness of the globe, it's just been insane. And the country and the world has been feeling this urgent need just for like comfort. You know, you just wanna crawl in your bed and go under the blanket. And that really affects the way we eat and affects what we're purchasing. So that kind of a trend, for example, has like what we call comfort roots. So we look at these different major shifts that happen to try to figure out kind of where the puck is moving. Global trends are a major um, uh, part of that as we're, we all got stuck not traveling, but we're, we're really craving kind of new flavors. So we saw a lot of people experimenting with global flavors around the world as a result of not being able to travel to bring them closer to home. Um, so those kind of um, uh, higher, higher source factors are really important as we think about where beef fits into all this. So when we did the innovation work, we use these culinary shifts. I call them like archeological dig spots for like food. And we use them to inspire um, the chefs that we work with. We worked with a team of over 10 down in SRG. We also did an amazing um, brainstorm with the um, Idaho Beef Committee, Promotion Committee, and they were amazing, the ideas they came up with. <laughs> but we started with the chefs and we started brainstorming and tasting and then creating some applications that were a little closer in that you can get with and some of that were a little farther out, okay? And innovation is not meant to succeed. Innovation is meant to succeed and it's meant to fail. So then what we do is we came up with over hundred ideas on paper for sushi and, and finger steaks. And then we um, honed them down, we distilled them down. And then we talked about our target audience. So not all, you know, the cattle men and women in the audience today are a target. I mean, that's just a reality. And I think they recognize that some are and some aren't. Um, so we really focus in on what the target is looking for and where the biggest opportunity is to sell more beef, because that's really the end goal. And then we go into the test kitchens and we actually had some of our committee members come down and we do a tasting. And, you know, like all of us on probably listening to this podcast, it's like, you know, tasting is believing. So you have a chance, it's like, oh my God, this is so delicious, or it needs more salt or whatever it might be, or this could be used a different beef cut, or I like it like more rare, I want it more done. We did a lot um, blending in with Idaho potatoes. We, we wanted to work also with ingredients that surround beef here in Idaho that are indigenous to the state to make it um, more of a reality too. So that's really what the innovation process is. And then we often go then go out and we test these concepts with, in our case, it was food service. So we tested them with restaurant operators um, to see what they thought. I mean, they're the, they're the ones that are like, yep, yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. And that's kind of where we landed for our first iteration of innovation, which will land on um, a new website, new landing page starting in January. So what were some of those innovative or what were some of your favorite trial and errors that you kind of tinkered with specifically with the Idaho Beef Council? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I love the beef nigiri. I think it's really nice to have a beautiful piece, especially if it's a wagyu piece of beef on top of a nigiri sushi. I think that was really beautiful because it can be marked up. I mean, the food cost is nothing to the operator and he can mark it up and make it like a $28 starter, which I thought was really cool, really cool. The Idaho roll that we came up with, I loved because I love trout too. And I thought it was a great combination to have that beef and the trout. Um, I also love when we played with the mashed potatoes. I don't know if you saw the negamaki. We rolled the beef around um, like a mashed potatoes and peas and um, a really delicious sauce. And so basically it was totally what you might even make up as a kid on your plate. You, know, you could have like <laughs> taken a steak dinner and peas and mashed potatoes and created that, but we just turned it into a sushi roll. And it's just a fun, different way to pop beef. 
And then you could have as an appetizer, it could be an entree, it could be shared. I think those are some of my favorites that were really fun. Well, and I think too, it's, you eat with your eyes first. And so, like you said, like the peas and mashed potatoes and beef was something we had on the plate all the time, you know, and, but when you wrap it up and put a little sprig of rosemary or something, you can mark it up and it makes it an amazing product or an amazing appetizer and can get beef in front of people that might not have that experience of meat and potatoes maybe on their that's plate. the way we should serve it to our kids in case there are any issues maybe <laughs> get, get more play who knows but yeah a lot of good applications there. absolutely well um i guess maybe just i want to expand a little bit on the finger steaks you know when i go when i've had people from colorado come visit me in idaho and i take them i got to take them for finger steaks because it's famous to idaho but they are so confused when I bring it up. So how, I guess, how are you, is it starting to branch out and how are you guys helping that branch out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the president of, um, of the Idaho Beef Council, TK, um, had a great insight because steak, uh, finger steaks are like classic to this day, right? Um, and they're served, and then a lot of folks make them at home. So everybody has their own recipe. So it's a very, it's somewhat of a secular area to cross into with finger steaks. And everyone's got their favorites and they're not favorites and their variety of beef cuts and all that jazz. So what we saw as an opportunity is, you know, great, do it, do it yourself at home. But there are all these different ways to add a different spin onto finger steaks from the variety of beef cuts to the different coatings and seasonings to the dipping sauces. We show them today in everything from tacos to sandwiches to a poutine, which was with fries. Um, and I also see it, frankly, um, you know, having two children myself, I'm tired of the chicken fingers, you know, in the basket. And, um, you know, why shouldn't there be beef fingers in the basket, right? And doing something a little bit more interesting. I also see them as a more premium offering. So I do see them expanding here in Idaho and getting them on menus um, in different ways, but also expanding that usage across the country and bringing attention to what Idaho has always known and, and really coveted um, and making more of a specialty that we all know and love. So why not? Well, and even, I mean, they took it to Japan and it's on some Japanese menus there. And like, you have po'boys in the South that are pretty much, fr it's fried seafood or shrimp or whatever on there, but why not put beef on there? It's a great example. Yes, absolutely. Like, what are we known for, for Idaho that can work across the States and what can you put your own like regional spin on too? So, well, and using, and you maybe dive in a little bit to using those underutilized cuts or that I don't want to say leftovers, but you know, yeah. you, you have prime rib from the night before you yeah, have, you've got trim trim yeah. that's sitting there that you can make more money off. Yeah. Of. And that's really, I mean, when it comes down to it, it, culinary is super fun and it's delicious and all that good stuff. But in the end, if operators aren't selling what they're putting on the menu, it's not going to stay on the menu. So, um, and they have to use from a food cost perspective, you make a great point that um, trim is actually a great way to use um, trim and excess cuts that you have leftover underutilized cuts work beautifully in this so we showed it in a variety of different applications from the chuck and the round um, today and so they again they can get mark up the cost you're still getting your beef experience but in a really cool package so you know we're already seeing a lot of chefs um, we talked today about uh, sun valley resort where we're sitting here today really saying like no to finger steaks on the menu here they were like we are not putting on the menu 
They're just for people at home. And uh, we took um, the chef here, Chef Ken Pratt, up to um, Moscow to do some education with Explore Beef, a new program we launched this year, changed his mind. And he's seeing all this new innovation. We had an Asian style um, taco, right? Finger steak last night, which, which I think part of the crowd was like, what? But we got so many folks coming back. We actually sold out, if you, if you will. Um, couldn't keep up with the demand. So he absolutely changed his tune and now he's able to mark up finger steaks on the menu and serve them in a way that his guests, especially coming in from out of state, want to see them. Well, and it's just, it's cool to see them, but a typical finger steak to me is like the basket and the fries and stuff. And so to see it in a taco or on a sandwich was, was really eye-opening to me and just seeing that we can shift shift how it's played and and maybe it's not even call it a finger steak or you can call it what at whatever that point you, you can call it whatever you as want as long as we're selling beef you can call it whatever you want exactly <laughs> so amy we can't thank you enough for joining us today it's is, my pleasure is there anything else you want to leave listeners with and then where can listeners find more information about you guys and about beef yeah thank you for that first of all you guys rock on for doing this amazing podcast and reaching um, a lot of different beef producers across the country um I, again i've been working in the beef industry a long time and I work in a lot of different brands and all that jazz, but there's nothing um, more gratifying than working with the cattlemen around this country. And I don't feel like we're always selling product. I feel like we're protecting people's livelihoods. So we hope we can do some good programs for you. And I thank you for that. Um, you can learn more about SRG at um, www.srg.com. You can come see us in Boulder, Colorado and check out our test kitchens yourselves. Um, and also uh, make sure you check out um, uh, the new newsletter that we're putting out for Idaho um, the Beef Council. The Beef Council will also be launching new websites. You'll see a new landing page for all these recipes. So you could try some of these global recipes yourself to food service. So that's where you should go for more information. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. And we thank you listeners too for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email us at talktous at millennialag.com. Until next week, we're Millennial Ag.